chapter 4. We're going to look especially today at verses 3 through 7, but I'm going to start reading it in verse 1 again just so we get the running start and get the whole flow of the chapter there. So Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, in the next slide, we'll just start looking at chapter 4 and verse 3. Let me read it again for you. Let's focus in on it now. First part we'll be talking about today, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that's what Paul is really after in this chapter. When he talks about we need humility, we need gentleness, we need patience, we need bearing with one another in love, of course that applies to all kinds of human relationships. That applies to you and your marriage, that applies to you and your friendships. But he's not just thinking, he's not primarily thinking about those things. What he's really thinking about here is the larger, greater unity in the body of Christ. And what was the greatest threat to that unity in his day? What did he have to deal with over and over again? Well, it was Jew-Gentile. It was also, as we'll see a little bit later in the book, it was also slave and free. And there were possible tensions there now together as one in the body of Christ. But Paul's teaching us here how to have unity and the importance of having unity in the body of Christ. And first and foremost, he's thinking about ethnic unity, how differing peoples can become really, truly one in the body of Christ. And again, he, he starts it off with, well, you need gentleness with each other, and you need patience with each other, and you, you need humility, and you need to be bearing with one another. But now let's focus in on the terms that are in verse 3, and you, there you have it in front of you. And we all need to be. So cornerstone people, here's a word for you. If we are to have, and we do have, if we are to maintain real biblical God-honoring unity, spirit-wrought unity in this body of Christ, then we all have to do this. So this is a word for you. This isn't for the pastors to do. This isn't for somebody else to do. This, this is for you. And he says, I want you to be eager. We're going to focus on that word. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You're to be eager about this. The Greek word for eager is spudazo, kind of a cool-sounding word. Spudazo. Some translations rightly translated. It could also be translated, be very diligent to. The idea is you're, you're really into this. You really want this. You're on this. You're eager. You're excited about. You're enthusiastic about maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This really matters to you. You really care about this. You're willing to work hard on this. It's on your radar. It's kind of big on your radar. You get the idea. We're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So I want to ask you, are you eager? Is that on your radar? Do you understand how important that is in the body of Christ? Do you care enough that if you see something that might disrupt the unity, you're like, oh, my antenna just went up. Oh, we need to work on that. I need to be careful about that. I better be careful how I say that. The way I'm relating with them might not be right. We're very eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It takes every one of us being eager 
If 10 of you aren't eager, then we might have problems brewing. It takes every one of us being eager about this. Will you, will you say the word eager with me? Just humor me. Here it is. Eager. Yeah, you need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Notice the word, the next word. Sorry, we're going word by word for a little bit here. We're just talking about the terms first. Um, eager to maintain. Eager to do what? To maintain. Greek verb tereo. It means to keep. The implication here is it already exists. The unity of the Spirit already exists. Now you have to keep it. You have to maintain it. It already exists because when you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, He makes you all one. By one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, bond or free. We're all made to drink of one Spirit. So the unity is already there. It's a deep Spirit-produced unity. Now we need to be eager to keep it. Don't mess it up. It already exists. You don't have to create it. Keep it. What are we supposed to be eager to maintain? What are we supposed to be eager to keep? Well, the word unity. Now, the Bible often, 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 how many times you want me to say that? Often, often, often talks about unity. But the, the specific Greek word Paul uses here is only used twice, and it's by him in the whole New Testament, only here and in chapter 4, verse 13, he uses this word. It doesn't have any unique meaning, but it's just interesting. He uses a special word here, and it means the, the oneness. Unity means we are one. So we're to be eager to maintain the already existing, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit produced oneness that we have so that you and I, we are one. And you and them, they are one. You people who stood over here, you are one with those people who stood over there. And we are one with all true believers in the true body of Christ all over the planet, down through all of time. We are very much one. We're to be eager about that. It exists. We're eager to keep it, protect it, maintain it, cultivate it. The oneness. I mentioned he brings it up again in chapter 4 and verse 13, and there that reads, um, the pastors equip the saints, verses 11 and 12, to do the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ. Here it is, 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's where he wants us, unity in what we believe. So unity in what we teach. So as we're going to see, unity in what we say. This is very important in the body of Christ. So this is where the church is supposed to be, to maintain, to be eager, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So this comes to you, my brothers and sisters. You have to be eager about that so that if you're doing anything that might harm, that might, that might fracture the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, you stop yourself, you pray, you pause, you consider. If you see something disturbing the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, you're concerned. You're, in, you're not like, not my problem, not my. Yeah, it is your church. It is your problem. God let you see it. You need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Lord Jesus, make us, make me, make our pastors, make all of us eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's where we are supposed to be. Now let's go on to verses 4 through 6 and note the terms. And man, you can't help but notice the terms. I kind of emphasized them in reading them a moment ago. There is one body and one spirit. And seven times he says one. Like, are you getting the point? Do you think he's making a point? One, 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 one. Then four times he uses the word all, 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 all. One, 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 all, 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 all. What's the point of verses four through six? It is that we are all 
very one in Jesus Christ. And so we're supposed to work hard for that. Let me read the whole verse again. There is one body and one spirit. There aren't two bodies of Christ. There's one. There aren't two Holy Spirits who indwell us. There's one. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. My hope is in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the righteousness that God imputes to all who repent and believe on him. My hope is that at the last day I'm found in Christ, and that's your hope too. Then we are very one in our hope. There's one Lord. There aren't two lords over the church. There aren't two different churches with two different lords. There's one faith. There aren't two faiths. There's one, once for all, delivered to the saints. There's one baptism. There aren't different spirit baptisms. There aren't water baptisms. There's one. There's one God. We don't have three gods. We have one God in three persons. There's one Father of all who's over all and over all. How could Paul more emphasize this, that we are to be one, 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 and all? All of us are to be one. No exceptions. The body of Christ, very, very one. So those terms jump out to us, and this is how he's teaching us about our unity. This is where the great apostle wants us. This is why he said, now I want you to walk worthy of your faith and interesting. The first thing he picks is to get us to unity. He starts off with, so you need humility, so you need gentleness, so you need bearing with one another. So you need, I missed one. Anyway, you get it. And, and then he goes on to say, so here's what I want. I want you to be one, 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 all of you. Like, could he make a stronger point? Are you getting the point? Yeah, this is really strong for local churches. This is really strong for the church universal. This is really strong for the body of Christ. So you might wonder, all right, why is this the first thing Paul picks when he turns from the doctrinal section of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 to the practical section 4, 5, and 6, when he turns to the, so here's what you do, when he starts to describe what a worthy walk would look like, why is this the first thing he turns to? Well, we can only guess, but I'll make some guesses, and I'm just going to say because unity is, I'll make a guess, because unity is so important and yet so easily disturbed. It was so important in his day, and yet it was really disturbed, Jew-Gentile, slave-free. So it's really important, but easily. So next slide, look at it. Unity is emphasized because unity was and is challenged. I'm going to give you a bunch of reasons now. I think it's five of them why this is important. Unity is emphasized probably because unity was and is challenged. Always will be because what do you have in every church? Sinners saved by grace. You know, the Bible says where two or three are gathered together, there Christ is in the midst of them. So we could also just make a little spin off of that. I'm doing this reverently. I revere Scripture. I revere Christ. But you could say where two or three are gathered together, there's problems. There's trouble. Just two or three. You get some hundreds and thousands together, and, and there are problems. So unity is probably emphasized because unity was and is challenged. There are always threats to it. There are ethnic threats to it, fault lines along ethnicities. There are economic threats to it, slave and free, fault lines right there. There are relational disunities, people not getting along with one another. There's doctrinal disunity, people who teach false doctrine, people who teach true doctrine, and the conflicts that, ins that ensue. So uh, this is important because it's always a problem. It's always a problem. Pastor Steve, do you spend any of your time working on church unity? Oh, my. Like, when do I not? This is, this is always a challenge. This is always an issue and has been for my entire 
pastoral life. There are always challenges to the unity of just a local church like ours, much less in the whole body of Christ. Here's a second reason why unity might be emphasized here. Unity is emphasized because unity is critically important. You've already gotten that idea, but here it is again. It's just critically important. That's an understatement. It is very vastly crucial for healthy local churches. We see how critically important it is in that Paul uses that word, be diligent. We see how critical it is and that he mentions it again in chapter 4 and verse 13. I read it for you. Pastors get saints equipped, saints do the work until we all arrive at the unity. It's really crucial. And we see how crucial it is by the fact that it's mentioned so many times in Scripture. There are so many New Testament passages. I, I think I made a complete list of them all this week and looked at it and thought, now, how many of those, what do we do? How many of those do I make you sit through? How many of those can I think I can keep your attention if we look at some? We're going to look at a few. You all right with a few? The Bible says by the mouth of two or three witnesses, we're going to go to two or three. Actually, we're going more than that, all right? But let me just show you. I want you to feel how important this is, how often it comes up in the New Testament. Over and over and over again, this thing is addressed. Your unity, your unity, your unity. So I'll take you to Romans, the first epistle in the New Testament. Romans 15, he's closing the book down, verses 5 and 6. He writes, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. There's the standard of your harmony. There's where the bar is set. That together you may with one voice. That's striking. You may with one voice. So when you open your mouth and say something about a doctrine, I believe in the deity of Christ, I open my mouth and say the same thing about the doctrine, I believe in the deity of Christ, and we're speaking with one voice. We're supposed to be at a place where we all have one voice, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's critically important. It comes up in Romans. It comes up in 1 Corinthians 10. We see how critical it is. 1 Corinthians 1, 10, pardon me. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's serious. What? That you all agree. Literally, the Greek there is that you all say the same thing. Wow, he wants us all saying the same thing. So I ask you, what do you believe about the Bible? And you tell me the Bible is God's word. It's inspired and errant. It's infallible, it's authoritative, it's sufficient. Wow, okay, we, we agree. We're saying the same thing. It says, I, I appeal to you by the name of Jesus Christ that all of you say the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind. You're thinking the same thing, in the same judgment. You make the same judgments about issues and events and doctrines and truths. Wow, he really wants us to be the same. Let's, let's go to Galatians 3.28. Here's how critical unity is. It comes up in Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Well, those were the fault lines. There is neither slave nor free, and those were, to a lesser extent, some fault lines. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Wow, it's important in Galatians. Let's go to Philippians, Philippians 1.27. You hanging in here with me? Thank you. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy. There's that word again, oxios, worthy and wait. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, what does he mean by worthy? Same thing in Ephesians. Starts the same place as in Ephesians. 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together or striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Wow, it's mentioned so many times, it must be important. Well, let's go to Philippians chapter 2, and he writes in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Now, I remind you, he's the aged apostle, and he's in jail. It's not too good. He's like pulling on your heartstrings. He's asking for a little pity, the old man sitting here in jail, and complete my joy. What would make the old man sitting in jail happy? Here's, Here's the thing I would want. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. That's good being in full accord and of one mind. Wow, this must be crucial. It must be important. It keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. Does Peter ever talk about this? Thanks for asking. He does. 1 Peter 3.8, he says, finally, by the way, he says, finally, and then he writes a couple more chapters. Just want you to know, preachers can do, they can say finally, and then the sermon goes on for a while. It's okay. It's biblical. Finally, All, there's that all, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, kind of the similar cluster of characteristics you need in your heart, as Paul gave us in Ephesians, if you're going to have unity. And again, I remind you, this is especially about ethnic division in the church, but it, it also applies to marriage, it applies to relationships, it applies to any place where there's two or more people. And it's crucial. Let me take you to John chapter 17, one last passage. Can't talk about how crucial it is, how many times it shows up in Scripture without looking at this one. This is in Jesus' great high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. And he prays starting in verse 20. He's praying to the Father, I do not ask for these only, those disciples that were with him that day, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. Here's what Jesus prays to the Father, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Here's an effect of oneness in the body of Christ, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Got to pause there. Francis Schaeffer, the great apologist now in heaven, he referred to this verse and he called love in the body of Christ the final apologetic. The final thing that will convince them, yes, the Father sent the Son, biblical Christianity is true, look how they love one another. Let's go on, verse 22. The glory, Jesus praying to the Father still, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Wow. That they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The final apologetic indeed. You see how crucial this is. Jesus prays we'd have this so that the world can believe that the Father sent the Son. The world's to look in the church of Jesus Christ and say, how do they do that? How do they get Jews and Gentiles together and they love one another? How do they get slaves and free together and they love one another? How do they get men and women together? Because they're different. How do they get them together and they love one another? And the world is supposed to look at that and say, wow, the Father must have really sent the Son. So this is crucially important, this unity. It comes up again and again and again in Scripture, not just in Ephesians chapter 4. Is it that important to you? It needs to be. 
Every member of this local church needs to take unity very, very seriously, or our unity will be disturbed, or our unity will be disrupted. So why so much emphasis? Because, because, where did I say? Unity is emphasized because it is critically important. Here's another reason why so much emphasis. Unity is emphasized because a disunified church is a very distracted church. Amen? I don't even have a verse here for I could have found something that would fit, but I didn't because I'm going to run out of time if I give you too many more verses. But it's a very distracted church, a church rent by division and strife and animosity and people who aren't getting along and differences of opinion and clashing and arguments and fights and so on. It's a horrible thing. Has anybody here, you don't need to raise your hand, but has anybody here ever experienced that? Yeah, I have. Was it the best time in my life? No. Probably some of the worst times in my life were seasons of serious disunity in the life of a local church where I was one of the pastors. A a disunified church is very distracted from what? Well, distracted from everything that we're supposed to be doing. Distracted from bringing in and distracted from building up. Our focus is to be on that. We want to see people coming to saving faith in the Lord Jesus, and then we want to grow them up strong in the grace of the Lord. But a a church that's torn in its unity is all distracted from that mission, and it's not pleasant at all. Speaking of pleasant, here's another reason why this is emphasized in the Bible. Unity is emphasized because unity is wonderfully pleasant. Amen? It's wonderfully pleasant. Here's a great passage about that. It's Psalm 133. And the psalmist says, Behold, look at this. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Isn't that wonderful? It is wonderful. What's it like? He gives us some some similes. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, the high priest, running down on the collar of his robes. Let's pause. Let me explain that a little bit. He's not talking about motor oil. He's not talking about oil for your flaky skin. He's talking about on the day On the very day, in Exodus 30, you can read about it, and the day that the Lord directed Moses to make a compound of sacred oil and then to anoint and consecrate Aaron and his sons with it to serve as high priests and priests, that was a day when all Israel was so unified, so happy, so excited, so together. They were all there rejoicing that now this family, this man and his sons, they are our priests. It was a time of great and intense unity among the people of God. And so the psalmist talks about that oil. It's like that oil. Remember that day with the oil? And then he gives us another simile, verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. You can imagine how pleasant dew was in that arid climate. I mean, we like it here, right? One of my sons just sowed a whole lot of grass. And it rained a few times. I li- I'm like, thank you, Lord. You made it rain. Now he has a little seed, little green things coming up. How pleasant that is. They were excited when there was dew on the ground. It's like that. Refreshing, delightful. It's a joyful thing. It's attractive. How many of you, you don't need to answer out loud. I'm not one of those preachers who tries to make you answer out loud ten times in every sermon. Repeat after me, blah, blah, blah. No, I'm not. But how many of you like it? when there's unity, right? You like that. It's sweet, isn't it? Let me tell you about our, our most recent elders meeting. It was a couple weeks ago now. 
and there were quite a number of issues on our agenda, every one of which we could have found ourselves differing on. And I thought, man, if there's ever an opportunity for disunity to surface among our elders, it's going to be right now in this meeting. And we went issue by issue, and we all agreed, all agreed, all agreed, all agreed, all agreed. And when the meeting was over, I was like, thank you, Lord. It's wonderful when we agree in the things of God. It's wonderfully pleasant. One more reason why maybe Paul emphasizes this, why the New Testament writers, why the Lord Jesus so prayed for this so that we would be diligent for it, it is this. Unity is emphasized because unity is difficult. It's difficult. Because as I said earlier, because we're sinners. We're not only sinners, I hope you won't mind me saying this, we're dumb. We're dumb. We're not very good at figuring each other out. We're not very good at figuring things out. We're not get very good at figuring issues out. Like when there are believers who say, this is true, and other believers who say, that's true. And we go, uh, I don't know who to believe. We're, we're, we're dumb. We're not good at this. But we're also, we, we naturally tend to, uh, to assign, to, to put the worst spin on things. So Acts chapter 6, we're not going there on the screen, but just go with me. Acts chapter 6, there was unity, there was unity, there was unity, there was unity in the early church in Jerusalem. And then we get to Acts chapter 6, and there's disunity. And what was it about? It was about ethnic issues. There were these Hellenistic Jews. They're the ones from outside of Palestine. They're out in Greek world. They had a little bit different ways, a little bit different customs, maybe a little different accent, maybe a little different music. We don't know what, but they were different. They were the Hellenized Jews out in Greek land. And then there were the, the Hebraist Jews. They're in Jerusalem and nearby Jerusalem. And now they're in one church. And guess what? You get to Acts chapter 6, and there's a murmuring. Onomatopoetic word. Sounds like what it describes. And what was the murmuring? The, eth- the, the Hellenistic people said, our widows are being overlooked. Our widows are being bypassed. Our widows are being ignored in the distribution of daily food. All you Jewish Hebraist widows, they're, they're getting the food. Our Hellenistic widows aren't getting the food. There was disunity, and it was over ethnicities. It was over divisions among various peoples. Those things creep up in churches. Unity is difficult. They addressed it. They solved it. They were one again, and the church grew. So unity is crucial for a bunch of reasons. We just looked at some of them. Now let me talk about, let me switch gears and talk about four kinds of unity. So you can think about these with me. Four kinds of unity. I think this really covers the bases. I'm not the only person who's ever made lists similar to mine. Four kinds of unity. And let's look at the first one, and let me just talk about it. There is organic unity. All right, we already talked about organic unity. You are one. You don't have to become one. You are one. You have to maintain it. That's organic unity. We have that. It grows right out of the soil of saving faith in Jesus Christ. It grows right out of the soil of a regenerate heart. You are organically one. You're already that. But then there are some other kinds of unity you have to maintain. So the next kind of unity I'll mention is doctrinal unity. The Bible teaches that we are to be one in what we believe. Talk about that later. And the next kind is what I'm going to call operational unity. What do I mean by that? Every local church needs to make decisions about, every local church needs to make decisions about how it will operate. So somebody comes to the staff or to the pastors and says, can we have this kind of ministry in our church? Because I had it in my last church, and it was so wonderful. Please, can we have it at Cornerstone? And we say, um, in short, no. 
All right, there, so that's operations, that's strategy. We need strategic and operational unity. And then finally, there's relational unity. That's like in Philippians, Paul just writes, I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to agree. He names two ladies and just names them. They're sitting there in church when the letter's read. Oh, he's talking about us. And I urge you just to agree. So there's organic unity, doctrinal unity, operational unity, and relational unity. I'm going to talk about all four of those for a little bit now. So how do we keep organic unity? Well, that's what Paul gives us in Ephesians 4. We start with humility and add to that gentleness, and then we add patience, and then we bear with one another in love, and then we have to be eager to maintain the unity of the one, 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 all, 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 all. And that's Paul's biblical prescription for keeping the organic unity. It's dispositions of our hearts. It's attitudes of our soul. Same thing in your friendships. Same thing at work. Same things apply anywhere there's two people. Same things apply with you and your kids. Same things apply in your marriage. But they certainly apply in the church. We have organic unity. We need humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another to keep it. But let's move on. How do we keep doctrinal unity? Yeah. How do we keep doctrinal unity in a church? Let me give you some ideas on that. Number one, strong doctrinal teaching. You need a doctrinal pulpit to keep doctrinal unity. Pastor Steve, why is the pulpit so doctrinal at Cornerstone? Because it needs to be. Because the Bible tells us it needs to be. Let me give you a verse or two, Titus 2.1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You're supposed to go home and say, that was doctrine. That was teaching. That was strong. That was sound. The word sound is a word that means who who I know. It means it makes it's health giving. It promotes health. It's strong. It's sound doctrine. Or 1 Timothy 4, 11 and 13. Command and teach these things. Part of what I'm supposed to do as a minister of the gospel is command things and teach things. And until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. As a minister of the gospel, I'm supposed to be absolutely life-devoted to reading the Bible, to explaining the doctrines in the Bible, and to applying them to our daily living. And Paul says to Timothy, do that till I get there. Don't stop. This is your life. This is what you do. Because that leads to a doctrinally unified membership. Unified members who are saying the same thing, who have the same mind. There's even, does that mean we have to agree on everything? Do we have to agree on everything? No, we can also have this doctrinal agreement. There are certain things we put them on a list over there that we agree to disagree on. We can disagree on those things, and we're not going to fight. That's actually a pretty big list. The list of things over which we would fight with one another is a pretty small list. That's things like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, virgin birth, substitutionary atonement, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, second coming, judgment day, literal heaven, literal hell, second bodily coming of Jesus Christ, the resurrection. I'm sure that I'm missing some things. Oh, the inspiration and inerrancy of God's word. That would be crucial on that list. But beyond a, a core list with things like that, maybe a few more that I'm not thinking of in the moment, there are a whole lot of things on which we can differ. Like, for example, let me, I'll just ask you, brother, because my eyes just fell on you. Who wrote Hebrews? Who wrote, you don't know? Some say Paul. 
Yeah, I'm with Paul. How many of you are with Paul? Anybody here doesn't believe it was Paul? Yeah, see, we don't have unity. You're wrong. I respect your right to be wrong. But, and you know, I'm just joking when I say that, right? Just kidding with him. There's a whole lot of things we can agree that we can disagree on that. What about other segments of the body of Christ? What about our Presbyterian true brothers and sisters in Christ? And they baptize differently than we do. What about that? We think they're wrong. We'd like to convince them from the Word of God that they're wrong. They think we're wrong. But we all hold to such the same list of core essential doctrines that we embrace them and we love them and they embrace us and they love us. There are many things on which we can just agree to disagree, and Paul writes about this in Romans 14, 1 through 3. Let me read it for you. Follow, please. As for the one who is weak in faith, he's talking about food offered to idols, and one person says, oh no, that's evil food now. You can't eat it. He's weak in faith. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Have him into your home. Serve him dinner. But don't make it, and I'm going to convince this brother that he's wrong. No, don't even go there. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Paul's essentially saying to the Romans, there's some things you can agree to disagree on. Don't fight over them. Don't get on Facebook and hammer one another. Just agree to disagree. So how do we keep doctrinal unity? We need strong doctrinal teaching, strong doctrinal classes, sound doctrine in our core groups, a strong doctrinal pulpit, and we need to know which things we're going to fight over and which things we're not. And the list of things not is probably a pretty big list. You all okay with that? All right, you're all just looking at me. I'm, not, I'm, I'm good at reading faces. I'm getting deadpan, making me worried. All right, how do we keep, next slide, how do we keep operational unity? The members have to recognize that elders in particular and staff to some degree have to make decisions for the church. And members have to respond to their decisions with a willing and happy submission to and compliance with their judgment on that issue. Where do you get that, Pastor Steve? Best passage, Hebrews chapter 13. I love having an opportunity to squeeze this verse in here right now. It's good for you. He Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's the Word of God talking. I didn't make this up. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And then here's an exhortation to you. Let them do this with joy. Let them go home after their meeting about you where they had to tell you, no, we're not going to start that ministry that you want. Let them go home. With, don't make them go home and groan and go, oh, why did I get in the ministry? No, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, because if it's groaning, that would be of no advantage to you, or another version, that would not be profitable to you. Brothers and sisters, don't make your pastors groan, all right? Instead, it's supposed to be happy, cheerful compliance with the decisions they have to make for a church. Now, I could preach the whole thing, and don't make me do it. I could stop and preach the whole thing about how they need to listen to you. They need to be considerate. They need to learn from the wisdom in the flow. I, I, I believe all that, but that's not what the sermon's about, all right? How do we keep relational unity? Well, that's easy. That's our text, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, throwing first Peter's, Peter's blanket of love over their sinning against me. Not a problem. I can just cover that with love. What do you do when their sin gets so big that I can't cover it? My blanket isn't big enough. 
My blanket isn't thick enough. We'll get a bigger, thicker blanket. Well, I did, and it still isn't big enough. What they're doing, I can't, I just can't cover that with a blanket of love. What do I do? The Lord Jesus Christ tells us what to do so that we can keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Matthew 18, verses 15 and 16. He says, if your brother sins against you, what do I do? Talk to all my friends about it. No, you don't talk to anybody about it. Go, don't write him a letter, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. He wants to keep the the circle of people who have knowledge of this thing as small as possible because once a reputation gets damaged, it's very hard to undo that damage. So let's try and work this out one-on-one first between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others, just one or two others along with you. Well, I need all the elders. No, not yet. You don't need all the elders yet. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And it goes on and on, and eventually it might go to the church, and eventually there might be an excommunication. But how do we we keep relational unity? 99.9% of the cases, it's your blanket of love. It's your humility. It's your gentleness. It's your patience. It's your bearing with one another in love. And so we keep relational unity in the church. So I want to go back. Final slide, please. Ephesians 4.3. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so I want to say to you all, my brothers and sisters of Cornerstone Community Church, this is for you. We need you. To, this isn't something the elders can do and then it'll be done. No, we need you. We need every one of you to say, I'm on it. I'm in. I'm going to be really diligent. I'm going to work really hard at keeping relational unity and doctrinal unity and strategic or operational unity in my local church so that we can all have joy like the oil flowing down Aaron's head and onto his beard and down onto his garment so we can all be one. So I'm not preaching this because our church is torn asunder, rent asunder. No, not at all. I'm preaching it because it came up next in the text. I think we enjoy very wonderful unity. Do I think it can be better sometimes? Yes. So I'm also preaching for the, the, there are times when it can be better. You all ready to work together on this? All right, thank you. Let's pray for it. Father in heaven, we pray to you that by your grace, through the power of your word and your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lord Jesus, we want people to believe that the Father sent you. So help us to amaze them with our love, with our ability to receive one another in love and have joy together. Father, we pray that you would protect Cornerstone Church from disunity, from strife, from divisions. We pray that you would deliver us from from that, that you would make us, every one of us, very careful very thoughtful about keeping this church one. To your glory, Father, and to to the good of souls, we pray for all in the name.